Hi, I'm Adrian Albert, CEO of the Marketing Directors, and you're listening to Real Direct. In this series, we'll be speaking to great minds and the future of residential real estate. Joining me now is Eugene Paolino, partner at Genova Burns Law Firm. Gene has practiced law in New Jersey for more than four decades. He brings deep knowledge, experience, and practical skills to his clients' real estate development, tax abatement, commercial, zoning, land use, and redevelopment law matters. In addition, he has significant experience with municipal, county, and state developer incentives, as well as education and corporate law with litigation experiences in all of these areas. Gene is a member of Land Use and Approvals, Commercial Real Estate and Redevelopment, Corporate Law and Business Transactions, and Complex Commercial Litigation Practice Groups, as well as the Land Development, Education, and Real Estate Industry Groups. Gene, welcome to Real Direct. I'm pleased to be here. Good. I'm glad to hear it. It's uh, I'm thrilled to be able to talk with you today. I have a few questions that have been on my mind that I'd like to ask. One of them is, how has the legal process changed since COVID? As you could expect, the, the process has basically changed by virtue of location. During COVID, we're acting or working remotely. Uh, I, for one, was working almost uh, the entire time from my home. In the last several months, I would say in the last six months, there's been a, I think, a strong movement to try to bring uh, attorneys back to the offices. It's necessary because we have, we work with a great deal of collegiality. We need to talk to one another. We need to bounce ideas off one another. So from a law office perspective, the remote situation, I don't think is going to change completely. I don't think everyone's going to go back to an office, but there's going to be a lot more remote time, a lot more connectivity as a result. I found I worked harder from home than I was uh, while I was in the office, although I, I spoke to less people in person. From the governmental side, for a good deal of the time, trials were remote when they occurred. Most of them were adjourned planning board or, or board of adjustment meetings or any other governmental meetings were all done remotely. There was a great deal of two things, public participation, because everybody now can go online and see what was going on. And on the other hand, there was a lack of personal contact, the lack of understanding the flow of the discussion. When you do it remotely, it's just not the same. I can't characterize it very well, but it's not the same. So that, those are the changes from a remote perspective. There is one other thing that I think everyone would find interesting, and that is that we lawyers often relied upon our books, our libraries. And because we had to work remotely, because we had to deal with computers from home, most of the time now, we found that there was a lot of information resources online that we could tap into quickly. And it was a learning process, at least it was for me. And I think it's common throughout the industry that people began to rely more upon these little things they carry around with them, known as laptops, rather than books or any other pads. We have no files anymore. We just have laptops. I second what you've said with heartily, because in our little business, the interaction of one mind to another 
the sharing of ideas, the sharing of energy just here in the office is critical to our success. So I'm thrilled that almost everyone has come back full time to the marketing directors. It's It's been it, it was difficult at first to get them back, but we made it interesting and fun. And now I think everybody's happy that they've done it. But this brings up another topic I'd like to ask you about. Given these new work habits that's, that are slow to die, office space seems to be less valuable. And people are, in fact, giving up larger offices for smaller offices. So many office space owners are considering converting to residential have you noticed this? Yes, absolutely. At present, I, I think I have one or two clients that are developing offices. Most of the other clients are either doing ground up residential when they get to it. There's another issue there with the economics. Or they're, they're doing remarkable conversions of office buildings that I would never think would be converted to residential to residential. What are the numbers? Can we do it? Is it is the zoning possible? What what kind of advantages can we get from the cities or from the state? So yeah, there's a there's a large movement to pull out of the office market and into the residential market. The the balance is off. So I don't know where that goes. But you know, for let me give you an example. Veris, which is formerly Matt Cali, as you know, almost divested themselves entirely of office space and moved into the residential arena. They did this probably probably within the last four or five years. They were looked upon as geniuses today because they got out of it before anybody was getting out of it, right? And they are doing well. I'm sure the the, uh, the REIT market still isn't as great as it ought to be, as they think it ought to be, but they're in residential. They're not in office. Most of the other developers I'm representing, exclusively residential. I mean, that's where they're going. You said there was another issue with residential. What's that other issue? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> Where do you want me to begin? The economics for one thing today. The cap achievements, achievements of certain cap thresholds are hard to make. Financing is not good. For the most part, what I'm seeing in the market today is developers, remarkably, who are an optimistic lot. You would not think that, but they are. They're reasonably <laughs> optimistic. They are preparing to, to develop, but not developing. They are buying land, pursuing the, the financial you know, possibilities, looking at the zoning issues, trying to resolve the lay of the land ahead of time. But nobody's really putting the shovel to the ground unless they're required to because they have funds in place and they've got to do it or they have some other obligation that requires them to go. But for the most part, everybody's just preparing to develop. Why do you think that is? The market. I think it's the market. I think it's the. I, I think, I think it's short term. Uh, I think it's a function of being uncertain as to what rates are going to be. Interest rates will be. Lending. Uh, the lending scenario is still unclear. It's very much like the beginning of COVID. The markets froze, and that was a shock to the system. Everybody had to stop and think about what they were going and where they were going. And although they were proceeding headlong in one direction, they had to come to a halt. And that was frightening. It, it was frightening for them and for, for me and my, my associates. So, you know, it was, it was a difficult time. That's a very interesting comment. Are there any laws that are changing because of the situation going forward in New Jersey? 
I think to a large extent, everyone is getting back into the normal routine of making laws that from a local and even from a state and federal level that are trying to deal with the many problems that have always been there. Affordable housing, climate change, resiliency, flood, all of those issues are there. They haven't gone away. <laughs> I think that uh, in, in Jersey City, just as an example, there's legislation that was passed. I think I mentioned this to you in a, in a prior conversation that requires developers for the very first time, which, and it's not unusual in other places, but it was unusual here, to pay impact fees on, on development. A developer comes in and from the get-go, if they have a development, they must pay an impact fee. If they get site plan approval, they must pay, pay an impact fee. Now, the impact fee is graduated over time. It begins in 25 and, and tops out at 26, I think, 24, 25, 26. It's 0.5, 1.5, and 5% of the assessed value of the property. Now, there's some, and it applies both to residential and commercial. I think commercial is at 2%. It's a problem because these are, again, these are fees that are stacked on top of all the other things that they have to deal with. And that's that's a problem all the way down the line. If you're doing affordable housing, you've got an affordable housing obligation. A certain percentage of your tenancies have to be dedicated to affordable housing. And they, can't, and, and they can't be ghettoized. They can't be located in only a specific portion of the development. They must be spread out throughout the development, which is problematical for people because they have to figure out what kind of units are they building and how are they building it and where are they building it. Do the units do the units have to be the same as the market rate units? Exactly. Yeah. There's got to be no distinction between them. No distinction at all. No. Wow. Okay. Except the number. Well, what can a developer do to protect themselves against these kinds of additional fees? Other than uh, other than legally, lobby for, legally, what can they do? Other than lobbying for different laws, the real approach to this is planning. Is is really to sit down, talk to your lawyer, talk to your accountant and your advisors, whoever they might be, and figure out everything that must go into the pot. Figure out the numbers. Do the spreadsheets. Do the hard numbers, and determine whether or not. You can do it with standard financing, whether you need bonds, whether there's some kind of incentive that a city or a state can provide. Figure out where all of your, in, do, the, you know, do, do the input, the output. What are my assets and what, what's my income and what, what do I need to make this project work? And what does that mean for me in terms of the end of the day? What are the profits going to be? What's my cap rate going to be? That's planning is everything. So the back of an envelope doesn't work today. It depends on what you're putting on the envelope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Would you say that that is the most prevalent problem for a developer today is the financial aspect? I think it's the largest problem. I think that's the one that everybody goes to first. There's a host of other problems. I mean, development is never easy. There are many people who, and I think you, you've experienced this, who have an idea of development that is probably not realistic. And they need to, once they get into the process, they realize how complicated it actually is. But where's the land? Is there an environmental issue? Where's the rock? 
You know, where, how is the construction going to go? What are the construction numbers? Is there union labor? Is there, is there resiliency issues? Is there some kind, are the sewers right? Is the structure okay? How tall do you, are you going to go? What numbers are you going to place it at? What kind of dollars am I getting from the city for tax abatement or for pilots or for redevelopment area bonds? What are they asking of me? How much open space do I have to have? What is it going to look like? Who's my market? We think that's pretty important. <laughs> those are all the things that, that developers ought to look at. And all of those that I represent, they do. They look at all of that. And of course, you, you advise and help them with that. What do you feel is the most difficult aspect of your job? Primarily, the most difficult aspect is dealing with government officials, believe it or not. Oh, I believe it. In my last several years, I guess in the last couple of decades, I shouldn't say that things, time passes quickly. I've been dealing with relatively large projects, units that range from 600 units to 3,000 units, properties that go from, you know, eight acres to even larger in some instances. Government is often, it's fractured. So there's, you know, there's nine council people on a municipal council. There's a about the same number of planning boards and, and boards of adjustment. There's a lot of administrative people. There is always a mayor involved. There's a, there's a governor involved and a legislature involved. There's a lot of people to talk to your project about and make them understand what you need and how you want to get there. And you have to basically tell them what the roadmap looks like. So you've got to plan that out. As a lawyer, you need to know who do I go first? What do I present first? How do I deal with that? And follow through. And sometimes you need to reverse course or change course. You've got to always look at the nuances, look at how you're going to modulate whatever you're trying to get or do. And it's, it's a problem. And it in, involves, uh, by the way, not just lawyers. It's a, it's a team. It's teamwork. It's everybody. It's, it's, it's you as a marketing person. It's, it's uh, the accountants, it's the architects, it's the engineers. All of them are involved. They're all a part of your team. And what I try to do is I try to foster a lot of discussion within the team, even for things that are not specifically architectural or engineering. Uh, I, I, we, we talk to an architect and say, you know, this is what I have to deal with. Those balconies that you designed, they look great, but they're a problem. What's the problem? Well, they're not that uh, they look that they're, they're too open or, you know, is there are all the safety measures? How do you make sure that they're not cluttered or look terrible? You know, what does that look like in terms of a skyline? So maybe you have to change those balconies, not because they're bad, not because you didn't draw them well, but because they're just not right here. Uh, totally understood. You know, before COVID, there was a lot of interest in transit oriented development yes. sites. And everybody wanted to build around a transit hub, which is logical and makes good sense. Is that still the case? Yes, it's still the case. I think that that's not the only center of attention. Um, I think that depending upon the aims of the governmental administration, the mayor's office, governor's office, you may target uh, underprivileged areas as opposed to transit oriented places. You may, you may target riverfront areas. You may uh, want to increase transit availabilities in different locations that don't have bus service or, or train service. 
you know, Uber doesn't cover everything. <laughs> and many people can't pay for Uber. So it, be, it becomes a real problem. We have, for instance, in Jersey City, a light rail system that generally runs north-south. Well, what happens to the west? Jersey City is the second largest city in New Jersey, and the west side is not served. So what the proposals are to, to run a light rail branch straight across to the west, which they've done in one instance, but they, it's kind of limited, but to run it straight across to the, to the other side of Jersey City. A huge transit-oriented development is taking place around that right now. I think that transit-oriented is, is one of the topics, one of the centers of attention, but not the only one. I know that Jersey City is still extremely active and popular for development, but where do you see development heading outside of Jersey City? I think it comes along the, depending upon the disposition of the governmental people, it comes along the Hudson River. It runs to other areas in, in, in southern New Jersey. It goes to, you know, Warren and Essex counties. Newark has been the bride that's always been at the altar and never never gotten to the, to the wedding, you know, so it's, they, they've tried desperately to do and successfully in some instances to, to increase the development in that area. But it doesn't seem, in my perspective, doesn't seem to have the, the attraction, the allure that cities like Jersey City or even, believe it or not, places like Bayonne or Hoboken. How about Hoboken? You know, Hoboken, I was watching a television show recently, and uh, I think it was on the waterfront and and uh, the, the the host was saying, you know, Hoboken was a you know a waterfront city, but has vastly changed today. That's an understatement. I mean, Hoboken is not the same city as it was in 1930. No, not even not even close. So yeah, there's development throughout. I mean, Trenton is a seat of state government, and most of the buildings in Trenton. I, for a short time, I was a a, a redevelopment council in, uh, in Trenton. Most of the buildings there are substandard, terrible. The state takes care of its buildings and has a state region, regional area. The rest of the city has problems, serious, serious problems that officials are trying desperately to solve. They've got, they've got a, a, a um, standard of living that is you know, not good, not high, low and moderate income housing. And there's a lot of blighted areas. I mean, you could, I, I, this has not been done, but I would guess that you could probably, if you utilize the blight characteristics required under the local redevelopment housing law and applied it to Trenton, most of the city would fit. Wow. You know, you mentioned uh, Newark. I understand that there's a rent control that's going to be applied even to new construction. Can you tell us anything about that? Well, I, I don't have a lot of involvement in Newark, but that uh, my office does. We have our main offices in Newark, but there is a rent control ordinance in Newark and there is concern, I can tell you this, how that will affect the development in that area. Because once, and, and that's been proposed, by the way, in every major city, I think in, in, in the state, including Jersey City, Rent control is a severe debilitating factor and one of the issues that a developer needs to consider in terms of whether or not they want to even do a development there. You're going to control my rent after I put so much money into this piece of property? No, that's not going to work. 
So it has to be done sensitively and it has to be done carefully. Perhaps it has to be done on a trial basis. I don't know how they're approaching this, but uh, I, I know that they are dealing with it. I think this is all part of the housing problem in the Northeast and specifically in New Jersey. Affordable housing is certainly an issue. How you deal with it presently has not been done well. It hasn't been done properly. And I can give you ideas about that. And I've discussed it with political people and, and governmental people. It's not an easy, not an easy issue to resolve. It's, it's hard. So do you feel that it's that for developers, that residential will become more restrictive as these rent control rules apply to everyone? Or will there be a fair value imposed upon the start of the rent? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping and I have hoped for two decades that developers who are notorious loners begin to think of themselves as a group and to advocate for themselves as a group. I represent a developer and I stand in front of a municipal council or a planning board and I'm always standing beside my client who's one individual and trying to persuade them in a specific direction. If I were standing there with an association or an expert hired by an association, it's a different story. Developers are loath, except perhaps in Manhattan, are loath to join up in a group. <laughs> they just don't like to, they're not clubbish. <laughs> it's very true. They are lone wolves. They are. I think that's a very interesting perspective on things, though. And maybe, there, maybe there's an opportunity there for us to get all these people together somehow. Yes, I think so. Um, I mean, the Real Estate Board of New York is wonderful, right? I mean, I, you have probably had more experience there, but th there is, frankly, nothing like it in New Jersey. I mean, they're groups, but they're not, not of the same power, ambition, or fa factual, uh, uh, frankly, the funds to get that kind of influence. They don't, they don't get there. They don't do it. And uh, that, that's been a problem. It's very interesting. You know, there is a New Jersey Builders Association. There is. And I know they certainly try very hard, but it seems that their power or their influence is mostly concentrated in suburban areas rather than urban areas. Is that your ob observation as well? Yeah, that's exactly it. I don't mean to, to, to give the impression that developers are a, a group of abused people. They're not. <laughs> but well, maybe they are. <laughs> <laughs> I think that they fail to take the advantage of acting in a, in a union in a, in a, as a united front. They, they just don't do that. And that, that causes them innumerable problems. It causes Lawyers are innumerable problems too. Of course. So Gene, what advice would you give a new developer just coming into the area? Other than seeing a good lawyer? <laughs> that would of course be number one. Do your homework. Find out the locations that are of interest. What are you trying to accomplish? Are you doing a, a, a small uh, unit building? Are you doing a seven story, you know, 
30, 40 unit building, or you, or you, is this a big project? Determine where you want to go and find out what the community looks like in that area. By the way, community groups throughout the state and certainly in the major urban areas, Newark and Jersey City and Trenton and Camden and all the, all the other major cities are, have generally have relatively strong community groups who have a voice political people on boards, in the mayor's office, in the governor's office, they respond to community pressure. You've got to engage them. You've got to talk to them. When I have a, a large project, I have seven or eight community meetings. These are my plans. What do you think? You know, do you have any problems with any of this? What about traffic? I get, we get that a lot. Parking, a lot. So there's always this conflict on, on that issue. You know, do you want you want parking or do you want mass transit? I mean, it just becomes crazy. It becomes very difficult to to reconcile all of the issues. No, it's it's uh, development is not for the faint of heart. No, it's uh, it is not. it's become extremely complicated and extremely sophisticated. And I think that I think your points are well taken. Well, Gene, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Unfortunately, we're running out of time and I know I've kept you longer than, than planned. Uh, I, I really enjoyed talking with you so much and I know that our listeners will as, as well. So to learn more about Jean and Genova Burns, please visit genovaburns.com. I'm Adrian Albert. Thank you for listening to Real Direct, Elevating Residential Real Estate.